Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? I am home alone, sir. I am home alone and entrusted with the whole house to myself. I'm very excited about this prospect. Although so far um, it's been very low key and and part of that, Paul, comes as a sort of culmination of a week that's been low key because I've been at home, very often on my own, filling out my tax return for the last uh, couple of Ooh. days. So it's done now. Uh, I can breathe a sigh of relief and um, everything's above board and legit and we're all good. What about you, man? I think you've had a much more exciting and interesting week than me. Uh, I've been to Amsterdam uh, for a friend's 30th birthday, so that was quite a lot of fun, I have to say. Um, we visited some museums um, and went to some places and it was good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the redacted form of uh, yes, what happened the in Amsterdam. Form of my Amsterdam trip. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've had about a three day hangover and I've definitely caught uh, if, if not coronavirus, then some kind of flu. Yeah, uh, a so kind of nice. coronavirus uh, from the, yes. the brand rather than from, the... Uh, from drinking too much corona, yeah. Affliction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, so no, it was it was a fun weekend. A fun weekend indeed. Yeah, and of course we should say, um, you know, our sympathies with those who are actually suffering with the, the terrible yes. uh, scourge of the coronavirus at the moment. And uh, shouts also to the fact that we lost Kobe Bryant just over the last week, which was, uh, I think, a massive shock. And you told me just before we came on, he won a, an award for filmmaking. He won an Oscar for a best animated short film called Basketball Dreams, I think it was called. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it. But yeah, I had no idea he was an Oscar winner. So um, yeah, I th- he certainly thought so that's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. I think I said it to while we were away and people were just like, no way that's happened. And then they all looked at the news and they were like, shit. So um, yeah, yeah, shocking news. So yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I had no idea we won an Oscar before that. So. Yeah, that that and obviously all the other people on the, on the helicopter at the time, including his daughter. So yeah, terrible, terrible news. I mean, we are a film show, so we're not going to dwell on it, but um, we are going to get into talking about films eventually. I mean, I have a confession, Paul, to open up this week, which is that not only have I been terribly boring staying at home doing sort of sensible adult things, but also I haven't watched many films in the last week. I've been sidetracked with a couple of things. Um, we've burned through Sex Education, which I think you've started Just watching started as watching. well yeah started watching it last night uh, starting at season one actually so yeah i'm liking it it's good yeah it's really good, good. um i've also been watching a couple of sort of documentary series i'll talk about one of those in popcorn movies and yeah just a bit more tv and maybe a bit less film watching however having said that paul we have watched enough films between us to do not one but two features today we've got another double feature and uh, this week what are we covering so we've got the uh, latest version of The Grudge, uh, which I think we talked about last week, and then the new film from Armando Iannucci, um, A Personal History of David Copperfield. So excited to talk about both of those. Um, it'll be interesting to see where we where we stand on those. So uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, so that sets up the features for today. Before the features, as you know, we always have a section called Coming Attractions, in which we will preview films coming out over this weekend. From today, we're recording on a Friday, and over the weekend that is ahead of us. Before that, we have a section called Popcorn movies in which we are going to share short form reviews of films that we have seen recently and at the very end of the show of course we have credits where we can credit something that we think is right good and you might enjoy let's get to it though man i think today like last week we're going to kind of jump over the news section because we want to get into the meat of the show and leave ourselves enough time to really unpack all that there is to unpack with the two features for today if if you're happy with that yeah and i couldn't find that much interesting news anyway very briefly i think i did read somewhere that there's this been some 
some some lucky people have seen some footage of Denny Villeneuve's Dune um, at like a Warner test screening. Apparently, it looks incredible. Please hurry up and release the trailer. Um, but that's about it in terms of stuff that sort of grabbed my attention really of this week. So uh, yeah, popcorn movies coming up. So we are back and into the first big section of the show. That is the section called Popcorn Movies in which we're going to review films that we've seen in the last week. Paul, you've been away. Have you managed to see one, two, three movies in addition to the features? I've been to the cinema four times this week as in addition to wow. going on holiday. Um, the, when, I watched, when I watched the two feature review films, I'll be honest, I came in packing three cans of Monster because I was still horribly hungover. Uh, and that kept me awake in the cinema because if there's, there's not, I mean, there's a number of things that I hate. But what I really hate is falling asleep in the cinema because you're tired. I despise it. It's a waste of everyone's time. So I came packing cans of... Occasionally, if I know I'm tired, and I'll come packing cans of Monster, which isn't good for you. I'm not promoting it as a way to stay awake or promoting it as a healthy drink in any way. But it does the job if you're worried about falling asleep in the cinema. It's good for the midnight screenings as well. Or maybe just go at a more sensible time of day. So and, so as uh, fascinating <laughs> as that is, what have you actually watched? Yeah. <laughs> Right, so this week, one of one of the first things I saw this week at the cinema, one of the things I've seen this week at the cinema, was uh, Bombshell, um, directed by Jay Roach, um, which talks about um, the sexual harassment scandal at Fox News um, with, well, by the head of Fox News, a guy called Roger Ailes, who set it up. Um, this stars um, Charlie Theron, Nicole Kidman, and Margot Robbie um, as employees of Fox News, two of which are major news anchors, one of which is kind of, and Margot Robbie plays a, a younger kind of intern trying to work her way up in the industry. Um, an incredible performance from John Lithgow as Roger Ailes features here as well. Um, and Jay Roach, you may know from, uh, he wrote um, The Big Short and your favourite of the year, Vice, I think. Um, so if you're familiar with those with both of those films you should be kind of familiar with the tone of this although it plays it less for comedy than those films do um, which I'd like the big short I didn't like Vice as much so you kind of get the get the tone of this for the most part I have to say I, I thought this was a solid if unremarkable film in places I think the performances are good um, John Lithgow as I've mentioned is good Charlie Theron, Michael Goodman and Margot Robbie are all, they're all good in their roles at what they do it's kind of an eye-opener, really, that you have these female characters that don't identify as feminists. I don't really understand how, how you could not, but it was an eye-opener into into the world of Fox News, for sure. Um, not without some reservations, though. I thought, as much as the film landed some punches, there is a particularly powerful scene uh, between John Lithgow and Margot Robbie that will certainly stay with you and is, you know, is is one of the film's highlights for for the wrong way, if that makes sense. There is that that's, that's a good scene, and, and you certainly lands a blow where it needs to land a blow but then towards the end it kind of I felt like it kind of made out the Murdochs to be the heroes of the hour and that I, I struggled with a little bit and then it was like they come in and it's all, I don't know whether it's deliberate or not but it feels like the Murdochs kind of swoop in and save the day and you're like well they must have known what this man was like when they put him in charge of their sort of cable news station so yeah not I liked it. I didn't love it, um, but it's still just about worth your time, I think. Well, um, I haven't got to it yet, Paul. I had tickets to an advance on that one and, and didn't go for whatever reason. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because, I mean, it's such a strong ensemble cast that I guess that was that's enough uh, yeah. of a draw already on its own. It's very, very, it's a, like whatever you think of the, the political messaging of it, whether you think it pulls its punches or lands its punches, 
it is still a well put together film. And as I said, the, the, by the strength of that cast alone, it's it's a very watchable film for sure. Nice. Um, first for me this week, a documentary. This one is The Class of 92, uh, directed by Gabe and Benjamin Turner. Uh, for those uh, uninitiated, The Class of 92 refers to the group of teenage football players that came through the academy at Manchester United, uh, broke through and became basically the spine of the most successful football team at the end of the 90s and into the 2000s. Um, these uh, players uh, made up of, of course, David Beckham, Nicky Butt, Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, and then Phil and Gary Neville, the brothers who both represented England, along with a, a few of those others. Um, I'm not a Manchester United fan, and I say that, it's important to say that, I think, because I think that there is an audience for this documentary of Manchester United fans who will lap it up almost without any uh, discerning sort of judgment about the quality of the actual documentary filmmaking. That's not to say that it's terrible, but I did find it to be a particularly dreary proposition. It kind of drifts through from the mid-90s, with cutaways to the sort of general idea of what's happening politically and a sort of, you know, a sort of wave of the hand in the direction of this maybe having some kind of social resonance. The fact that these kids largely came from working class backgrounds in Manchester and the way the city changed over time is an interesting um, area of focus, but the documentary is not that interested in it. And um, you wouldn't really expect it to be either. It, like I say, it's sort of a cursory no. concern of this documentary. Um, that things go me as well I mean I, I, maybe I'm a stickler Paul but I think you'll understand things like when we play music that came out the year a certain thing was happening but then we do that for a certain amount of time and then we play a piece of music that didn't come out in the year so yeah either so either yeah two plus two yeah. equals five yeah. the radiohead track did not come out in 1999 so I was a little bit upset about the, <laughs> the use of that as an example but yeah like I say I mean the, the word that stuck with me after this was kind of dreary you know I, I love football I'm a massive football fan I was interested in the stories of these players but unless you've dug you know no more than sort of uh puddle deep into football history or you were born you know 10 years ago it's hard to know how you wouldn't already know most of this stuff about the class of 92 mm. so yeah for, for you know Manchester United fans it will give you a huge uh you know adrenaline rush I guess as you you march towards the the triumph in 1999 in particular but for other football fans it's not essential um yeah and I could have passed on it had I known but yeah that's the class of 92 what else have you seen Paul uh, the other film I've seen this week again that I managed to squeeze into cinema and thank you Odeon for showing this because I didn't expect to get to see this on the big screen uh this is Weathering With You the latest animation from director Makoto Shinkai who directed the quite frankly mind-blowingly good uh Your Name um a couple of years ago which which had me in absolute bits at the time when I watched it and he's, he's one of my favourite animations of the last probably 10 years, I would say, quite, quite easily. So, um, yeah, quite very, very excited about going into this one. And thankfully for me, um, it, it certainly certainly didn't disappoint. Um, there's something about the, the way this man makes films that just hits me in all of the feels, like in all of the feels at the same time. Like this, I don't think is quite as strong as your name, but the, the premise, sorry, before I rush ahead with sort of gasping with praise, um, a high school boy who has run away to Tokyo befriends a girl who appears to be able to manipulate the weather. Um, so yeah, it's bonkers in places you might expect from uh, an imaginative Japanese animation. Um, but my God, is it beautiful? Like as, as you might expect, it's absolutely stunning in terms of the, 
the world that it creates. Um, takes a little bit longer to find its feet, I think, than Your Name did. Um, but that's not to say it's a bad film in the slightest. And when it does sort of hit its crescendo um, with its in incredible, incredible set pieces, I was crying like a baby in the cinema, which is always nice to see. Uh, and no one, obviously, no one around me was embarrassed in the slightest. It was just me. Um, so, yeah, crying like a baby in, in the midst of this one. So, yeah, it comes highly recommended. And, yeah, I absolutely love this film. I'd be, It may, may appear very much later in the year should we say it's a bit early in the year to be talking about best of year list but this you know this may well be up there because it, it got yeah, me yeah well it'll it be one me. of those won't it if it's um, really made an impact it'll survive to the end of the year because often we find sort of mid early yeah. January releases are the ones that can slip down and down and down with the passage of time unless you go back for maybe one or two rewatches or it was just so yeah. powerful that it sticks with you all year long so it'd be interesting to see I meant to get to this one when we had a screening uh, locally and couldn't work got in the way so yeah I want to catch up with it as soon as possible it looks really good um, my second popcorn not really really movie for this week because as I've confessed I didn't really watch a great deal of movies uh, is Killer Inside The Mind of Aaron Hernandez uh, Killer Inside of course is that Michael Winterbottom movie with uh, uh, Casey Affleck as well isn't it or Killer Inside Me I should say yeah um, yeah, yes, be, yeah. uh, but you, you probably have an idea of the territory here. I don't know if uh, the general populace, but at least in the UK, would know who Aaron Hernandez is. And I didn't going in. Uh, it turns out Hernandez is uh, or was an NFL player for the New England Patriots who hit infamy uh, across the United States and, and you know the, the entire world, really, when he was arrested on suspicion of murder of a guy seemingly in his social circle, the boyfriend of his... Um, excuse me. So his girlfriend's friend's boyfriend, a guy that he associated right, with yeah. because basically his girlfriend had a mate and they used to spend time together, you know, fraternise together. So there's this guy, Aaron Hernandez, who comes from um, a tricky, that's an understatement, a really horrible, uh, it seems, background in terms of his relationship with his father or lack thereof, the way that he's treated as a child, uh, possible hints that there was physical and sexual abuse uh, enacted upon him as a small boy. But then a guy who is outstanding when he steps on the football field, on the gridiron, and competes. He's a physical specimen. He's quick. He's got great handling. He's got all of these attributes that kind of make him a bit of a super player. But within all this, he gets to that point in time that's so pivotal for American football players where you are potentially drafted into the NFL. With all that Hernandez has going for him, it looks as though he'll be a first round pick, as in cream of the crop, the elite players. And he isn't. He's picked a lot lower down in the draft. And people start to ask, why? What's the issue? There must be something with Hernandez that people know. And this documentary over three, I think like hour long episodes, basically lets you in on the things that are up with Aaron Hernandez. And in addition to that, charts the legal actions taken against him and his situation as it is today. Uh, and I can't really say more than that, but it, it, you don't need to be, it's another one of those, you don't need to be an NFL or American football fan to be interested here. It's one of the quite sort of intriguing true crime documentaries that Netflix seems to specialise in. And this one with a above average set of production values. So it kind of moves along at a decent pace. 
I think I saw the trailer for this the other day. Actually, I wasn't sure what you, well, I wasn't sure what you're referring to. I think the trailer for it came out after the. Don't yeah, they've been pushing thing, it quite hard, Paul. Um, but like, it, there, yeah, yeah, it's slick. It's intriguing. It's d- difficult. Uh, it touches on a number of really quite difficult um, issues, and so it, fair warning on that. But not great, but certainly good. And uh, like I say, a, an interesting watch and and really, you know, lifting the lid on a world that I know so little about in terms of not only Aaron Hernandez himself, uh, I knew next to nothing, but the NFL and American football. And I think later in the documentary series, particularly the third of the three episodes, we get a bit into the territory of discussing the impact of CTE, uh, brain injury and trauma from uh, American football or other sports on the mental states of the players. So that's interesting stuff as well. So yeah, worth worth watching, I think. Um, Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez, streaming on Netflix at the moment. Any more for you, Paul? Uh, no, as I said, I've, I thought I've done well enough this week. You have, <laughs> you really been have. Away and going to the cinema four times. It, just in that case, <laughs> uh, we will take a little break and we'll be back after that break with the section of the show known as Coming Attractions right after this. So, yeah, as Pete mentioned, this is Coming Attractions where we run down the film, the major releases this week that we think you're going to be able to get to um, and give you our thoughts on whether we're excited about them or not. Um, there's a lot out this week, Pete, isn't there? For, yeah. Throw them at me. There, there is a week. lot out this week, Paul, and we'll cover not all of them, but maybe the, the more significant uh, releases of this weekend. So we've got the rhythm section. This one, directed by Reed Morano, tells the story of a woman seeking revenge against those who orchestrated a plan plane crash that killed her family um in the central role in this one is blake lively an actress that i think we've talked of quite fondly in things like uh the shallows in particular um there was that gangland mexican drug cartel movie that i now can't remember the name of that she was in that was really good but yeah various places i think blake lively is someone that we quite like uh, alongside her jude law and sterling k brown another actor that that we've talked uh, sort of fairly highly of on the show. This one, Paul, currently sits at a meta score of 43. Not great signs uh, maybe coming out of critical response to the rhythm section. How are you feeling? Have you seen the trailer? Have you got any anticipation of... Uh, yeah, I have seen the trailer. I'm kind of kind of keen for this, to be fair. I think it's... I think I will probably end up seeing this because it's come out in a week of which I've, there's a few bits out that I've already seen, so um, which we'll get to in a minute. There's a couple of films out this week that I've been lucky enough to see at preview screenings, so I think as a result of that, there is more chance of me getting to this. Whether it be any good or not, the, the jewelry's out. I think the trailer looks the trailer looks intriguing enough, and the talent involved um, is certainly enough to draw me into the cinema. So yeah, if I get a, certainly if I get a chance, which hopefully I will, I'll, I'll check this one out and make my own mind up. I think. Whether it's great or not, I don't know. I think it will certainly be entertaining. I think it will be watchable, bare minimum. Yeah, there's there's a movie, again, I can't remember the name of any of Blake Lively's movies. There's a movie in which uh, she's blind at the outset called, like, All I See Is You or something like that, which is basically garbage. But, like, I think she is engaging enough that I would defend a movie like that. I'd do a particularly good job of defending it if I could remember what it was called. But, yeah, anyway, rhythm section. I'll go, you'll go, and we'll give our thoughts um, on a future episode. We've also got out this week a a biographical crime drama going by the name of Richard Jewell. This one from a little-known director called Clint Eastwood. I didn't realise this was out this week as well. Yeah, indeed. It's a big week. Uh, American security guard Richard Jewell saves thousands of lives from an exploding bomb at the 1996 Olympics, but is vilified by journalists and the press who falsely reported that he himself was a terrorist. 
Um, at the center of this one, if I am not mistaken, it's your boy, yeah, Paul Walter Hauser, the guy who was in uh, Black Klansman um, and is so good in Kingdom, the MMA drama that was on some obscure network but I had through my TV service. Also in supporting roles, we've got um, Sam Rockwell amongst others. John uh, Ham's in this as well. Olivia it? Wilde's in this as well. John Ham's in it, you're right. Yeah, so... Uh, how are we feeling? I should say to keep parity with my last setup, 68 is the meta score at the moment. What is your feeling about Richard Jewell? If I can stomach Clint Eastwood's politics, which seem to be coming more and more to centre in some of his recent films, I think this will probably be a watchable thriller. Mm. Um, whether I rush to see it or not with some of the other things that are out this week, I don't know, is the honest answer. If I can stomach Clint Eastwood's politics, which he's still capable of throwing together a good film. He's definitely a talented filmmaker. But um, And some of the things I've read about this, certainly in the portrayal of a female journalist, List where it's insinuated, I think she turns tricks for want of a better term for for leads has been completely discredited. So it may leave a bad taste. We'll see if I get a chance to watch it. Yeah, f- fair comment. Um, did you see the Mule? I think that was his last one, right? Yeah, I, I found that fairly average. In all honesty, I didn't. Yeah, I, this, this. Yeah, it was fine, I guess. But that's it, Paul, isn't it? A review, but <laughs> I, you know, that's it. Like I, I think that that's about where I am with Clint Eastwood at the moment. If it's the sort of better side of Clint Eastwood's movie making at, at this point, I think the movies are basically fine to good, and I'm Sorry, happy I think with that. Was the last one I really enjoyed, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But I, I enjoyed the trailer and, and uh, Paul Walthauser is a, an actor that I like a lot. So we'll see. Uh, we've also got finally released in the UK, at least. I think it's been out in the States for a while. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. This one from writer-director Terry Gilliam, who's made a complete tit out of himself recently, unfortunately. But I read that interview, yeah. It wasn't, it didn't, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't bode well for really, him. Really, really weird interview yeah. with a female journalist in which he, he made a comment to the effect of, um, don't worry, I didn't, I won't hit you or I didn't hit you or something at the end to close the interview. That's really creepy. Look it up at your own peril. But in the central role is um, Adam Driver. Um, Adam Driver, of course, so excellent in Marriage Story recently and and many, many other projects aside from that. It tells the story of Toby, a disillusioned film director who is pulled into a world of time-jumping fantasy when a Spanish cobbler believes him to be Sancho Panza. He gradually becomes unable to tell dreams from reality. Um, it's kind of out there stuff, I would think, Paul. What are you thinking about, well, Terry Killiam in the director's chair, generally speaking, and this particular project? Uh, if I can find it, I'll see it. I think it's gone quite limited, unfortunately, this one. I might, I might be mistaken, but then I suppose if he's... He may have done that to himself with his with his recent interview. Um, yeah, I think, it, it's he, again, he's, he's a director that I think on form is incredible. Um, I th- what was his last was his last film Zero Theorem am I am I mistaken there yeah I think Zero um, Theorem which basically bombed um, yeah and again it, it was it was it was a, it had some good ideas in it but I, d- I don't think was a didn't feel particularly cohesive for me I think I, I like some elements I mean I, you know this I mean I will ultimately see this film because there's a documentary made about him trying to make this film so in terms of film circles of the films that you never ever thought would be finished you know the man who Don's go to has got to be up there in terms of the of the longest you've waited for a film ever so based on that I I will ultimately end up seeing this uh, for sure Yes, uh, another one we've got out this week, uh, and I know you've seen this one already, Paul, is from your boy Robert Eggers of The Witch fame. Uh, this is The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse tells the story of two lighthouse keepers who try to maintain their sanity whilst living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s, in the central roles. 
here we have Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Uh, he of High Life last year and, and so good in... Well, and uh, the one that you liked, uh, The King. The King? The King, yeah. 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 Um, I can't ask you your levels of anticipation here, so maybe I can ask you more indirectly... How much should others, uh, myself included, be anticipating The Lighthouse? You should be very, very excited. Um, and minor spoiler warning, they struggle to hang on to their sanity, which you might get from the trailer. Um, yeah, it's it's a fantastic piece of work. Um, and I'm, we'll, I'm uh, hopefully, we'll, I'm going to try and see this again before we review it next week because it is showing in Bath, thankfully. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic piece of work. It's It's a very distinctive film and be very excited for it. Um, and we'll talk. I would. I won't say any more than that until we review it next week. But yeah, it's great. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Paul. So a feature review of the Lighthouse will follow on next week's show, and it will be coupled with a feature review of the final previewed film from this week's run, which is Uncut Gems, the latest from Josh and Benny Safdie, the Safdie brothers. This one starring Adam Sandler in a proper role. There have been at least two in his career. Praise. Be. Uh, this one tells the story of a charismatic New York City jeweler, played by Adam Sandler, who's on the, always on the lookout for the next big score. He makes a series of high-stakes bets that could lead to the windfall of a lifetime. He must then perform a precarious high-wire act, balancing business, family, and encroaching adversaries on all sides in his relentless pursuit of the ultimate win. This film is stressful, Paul. I've seen it. I think you've seen it as well. We're going to talk about it next week. Again, the same kind of question. How much and how should people anticipate this particular movie? I think I'm going to throw down and say it's my favourite film since another film that I like a lot has come out. And I won't, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> we get more and more That's cryptic. cryptic. Yeah, we should yeah. just chuck these out of our That's previous cryptic. Uh, yeah, Uncut Gems is yeah it's tense yeah and i mean (laughs) those of you listening to this who saw a good time you'll know the kind of kinetic feel of a safety brothers project and the way in which you're going to be whipped along kind of whether you like it or not um and you sort of hang on for dear life until the the events sort of unravel in whichever direction they do so yeah uh, anticipate this not much longer because it's dropping what today now it's out out now on netflix so if you want if you're listening to this and you haven't watched obviously listen to this first and then what then watch Uncut Gems. There's no excuse. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind. Pause this, watch <laughs> it, and then come back to this and then listen to the rest of it. I don't care. Live well, yeah, and then life. listen to the review next week, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that rounds up coming attractions for this week, which means that we will bow out of this section and we will re-emerge with our feature reviews right after this. Right, so as we mentioned at the top of the show, there are two feature reviews this week, which is always quite exciting because it's a busy time of year at the cinema. Um, Pete, let's start with The Grudge, I think, um, which is a remake, well, sequel to a remake, I guess. I can't quite work out where this place is in The Grudge timeline of the films. It's another version of the Japanese um, horror film, The Grudge, essentially. Um, This is directed by Nicholas, is it Pesce? Is that the correct way of pronouncing his name? I'm going to say yeah. Okay, I don't I'm going to go with that. Do you know what, talking of talking of um, name pronunciations, I'm going to drift slightly here. I spoke to my mum the other day. We went for coffee, and uh, she said, "Oh, I'm so proud of you and Pete for getting all these names right." And I was like, "I don't, I can't guarantee we get them right, mum. We just try." <laughs> yes. Well, I have a, a go at another so, one, Paul. So, yeah, talking about the origins of this particular version of the Grudge, it is uh, the screenplay is uh, based on the screenplay from Takashi Shimizu, who, of course, is the uh, filmmaker who made Juon, the original Japanese version of the movie, and then uh, collaborated on the first 
remake in America, which I think came out in 2004. Um, and so he's remained involved and has kind of given his blessing to Nicholas Peche and uh, a guy called Jeff Buhler, who have worked on their own version. Now, this is a good start with the movie. I'll set it up. We'll hear a clip and then we'll get to our thoughts as we always do. But Nicholas Peche is this guy that I got uh, fairly high on last year, having seen this movie that took me by surprise by the name of Piercing, which I think is still on Netflix. He's very much a visual stylist and a guy who has a particular way of doing things that um, really kind of swept me up in, in, you know, when talking about that movie. Uh, I'll talk about my view on him regards this project as we go forward. Forward. But just to say that this is not any workaday director being given the latest churn of a horror franchise. You might come out of it thinking that that's what you've got in the end, but that's not what you're going in with. So, uh, of course, if you're unaware of the basic backstory of The Grudge, um, it revolves around the idea that when someone is killed in brutal circumstances, the... Uh, the situation or the evil that has emerged from that situation is released into the house where the events took place but cannot be contained there and in fact follows around the people who enter into that house and sort of creeps into their lives a bit like an infection might pass from one person to the other and we've seen this you know across many many different kinds of horror films in various uh, subgenres over the years uh, in this case though the virus is passed to an American who then returns to the States, taking with her the grudge or the curse, which then takes... Uh, or the Duon, it's called. Duon, Duon yeah. Uh, it takes residence in a home in the United States where terrible things unfold throughout the film's running time. Before we get into our full thoughts here, let's hear a little clip. Your husband told me about your condition and I'm here to see if I can help. Mrs. Matheson, are you all right? Who are you playing with? My friend. And what's your friend's name? Melinda. Melinda? Is she here with us now? So, yeah, who have we got starring in this? That's something we didn't talk about. We've got Andrea, Andrea Riseborough, I think, playing a detective investigating the uh, the sinister goings-on. Um, John Cho is in this as well. Probably the most recognisable cast member, as I would say, plays um, a real estate agent who gets caught up in the, the sinister goings-on, shall we say. And, um, a, and, a, yeah, uh, the, and a, a person who comes to basically assist suicide, played by Jackie Weaver, who I think is really good. Um, yes. But yeah, yeah, you're right. John Cho, it almost seems like too famous to just crop up in this thing uh, kind of halfway through. Yeah. But but yeah. is indeed there. And yeah, very much central. You mentioned her first is Andrea Riseborough, who is yeah on the case and trying to particularly pursue what happened to the guy who used to be in her role. So her partner used to have a partner. He was uh, investigating the case of haunting the grudge a curse or maybe none of that stuff and went mad and so she's also interested to know what happened there and maybe whether she can avoid the same fate i suppose uh kick us off paul where do you want to start with this thing um 
As I said, I think I said when we when we previewed it last week, I've never never thought the original was. I don't I haven't held it in as high regard as as other Japanese horror films. I would say so. Therefore, my sort of anticipation going into this wasn't massively high. But that being said, I am a, a big horror fan, as you know. So, um, I think that this opened for me a lot stronger than it finished for me. I would say I think I was pleasantly surprised, probably for the first half hour or so. I think Andrea Riseborough, I think, is is an incredibly underrated actress and you know i think should should be more famous but she's very good at what she does and i think she is she is probably one of the strengths of this film um and i think to to start with i think it it felt to me like it was a cut above your usual remake fodder i thought it's it's very well shot i thought it was um i thought it was nicely made um and again from from i said for the first half hour or so it did really felt like felt like we were onto something that would stand on its own two feet here i think um then for me I, I have to say it kind of the, in the second half for me it, it really almost almost undid itself i felt that it became um sort of generic too reliant on jump scares that just weren't working whereas the first half i think scared me in parts um gen- generally shipped me up a little bit and that was a pleasant surprise and then for me it kind of almost fell off a cliff i'll be honest and i found myself sort of leaving the cinema just a little bit bored of the whole thing. Pete, any agree? No, I, I love when these ones come up because I have a really different experience. So, it, you know, <laughs> I'll qualify by saying I'm, I'm not here. I'm not going to now say, you know, this is one of my films of the year or has totally blown my socks off. Definitely not. But I think that I credit uh, Nicholas Pesce enough to posit this take forthcoming, which is that some of the elements, I would say maybe many of the elements in this movie that might seem kind of dated or might seem kind of uh, scruffily made or a little bit slapdash at times, and certainly a word that you used kind of generic or a bit recycled, are kind of deliberately that way. I think this is almost a a real prime entry into making uh, an homage to a certain type of filmmaking. Like, even to the extent that the movie does a really good job of feeling like it's 2004. Even though that's like a very... When it's dealing with that particular year, it's a very specific time. um, I think Mm. that he employs various techniques very effectively to put you in a time and space. And it's not just a time and space in terms of being 2004 or maybe the like late or mid 90s in the case of early J-horror stuff, but like the, the kind of visual language that you're used to if you cast your mind back to when you were watching, you know, the Hideo Nakata movies and indeed uh, the Shimizu movie like originally back in the day. Yeah. So from that point of view, it gave me this kind of nostalgic feeling i guess for for those movies because we quickly forget that stuff like in my opinion the ring the grudge dark water like these these films that are real um you know big hitters when it comes to uh, japanese horror are flawed sections of those movies are as you've acknowledged at the, the outset here paul like sections of those movies are sort of um procedural and dull and a bit lifeless and a bit flat and I think Pesci does a good job of kind of doing that stuff on purpose to resonate with those movies, if that makes any sense. But then I guess on the it fell off a cliff for you by the end, the way the movie finished kind of gave me like a weird chill. Really? See, I, 
I saw it coming. I thought it was just signposted. Yeah, no, it was Paul, but that's but that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not that it was like, oh wow, look at that new innovative thing they've done with jump scares. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, Nicholas Pesce's kind of shit at doing jump scares. I think. I think the movie's not that scary at all. But I think what he does well is creepy stuff. And I think the way, even the way the movie finishes with a still frame on a house and the action continues, the birds are singing. That was good. Yeah, no, the still frame, the still frame at the end was nice. And it's Japanese horror movies then. It's Japanese horror movies that have done that before. And so that stuff just, even though in there he's going, oh yeah, now we're going to see a face and now there's flies and now there's like a, a noise throughout there are these elements that made me feel like this guy know like this guy gets it this guy knows what he's doing and for that reason mm. i think i gave him a lot more of a pass than i might have given had it been some work a day guy just kind of a music video director for example yeah just yeah. kind of throwing you know conventions at the wall and hoping some of them stick because i think it's a bit better than that it's not like i said at the beginning of this bit it's not to say that i think it's some sort of flawless masterpiece and the guy's a genius i think you know he will make vastly superior films but with what he was given i kind of think he's done a great job yeah yeah i wouldn't yeah i agree to disagree on that one but i i think the um yeah for me there's worse remakes out there like by a long margin it's not complete trash i've i've read some very 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 sort of savage reviews on it which i don't think are deserved because i think there's i've seen worse horror films and i've definitely seen worse remakes don't get me wrong, and I and I think I was. It said for me, I thought it was onto something in the first half. Like I was, I was quite enjoying it. And again, yeah, there's, there's, there is, and I'll give you that. There's no pretense at originality. There isn't. He's not. He's not even pretending that he's trying to do something new with this. So I, I, I give you that entirely. It just for me, it just lost its edge in the towards towards the end. And I think I don't know whether it, I mean I know the originals jump around in time and that kind of thing. I don't know whether it was because it was jumping around in time. I don't know whether it's because I I wanted to spend more time with Andrea Riseborough's performance. I don't know what it was. And but for me, some of the jump scares towards the beginning did actually work. And for me to be made jump in the cinema is is unusual because you see a lot of films. So and then they they kind of just stopped working. I just I don't know. I just. I left the cinema just a little bit bored, which is a shame because I think it started mm. well. Um, but yeah, that's not to say, and uh, yeah, I would. I, it's not to say it's the worst remake. You know, there's a lot worse remakes out there, a lot worse remakes out there than this. Like, it's no um, uh, Friday the Thirteenth remake. It's no Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which are just absolute trash. So yeah, it's 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 not without merit. I just didn't. It didn't grab me all the way through in the way I wanted it yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- there are there are oh, there are more things I can tell. I feel like this is one of those. I don't mind that I'm going to be in the minority on the grudge. I really don't. I mean, I see that the meta score is forty one. I've seen a lot of you know letterbox reviewers giving it low scores and things like that. I I, and I don't I don't I wouldn't be as so arrogant as to say that like you know people didn't get it or like maybe they wanted one thing and they didn't get what they wanted. But I think there's like an element of truth in maybe the second of those accusations that like i'm not sure what people want someone like maybe maybe if your opinion was don't remake these movies ever again fair enough fair enough but then i would think the best way to deal with that is don't go and see the movie that's been remade again (laughs) you know Uh, little elements in the movie the the featuring of the prominent or prominent featuring of the number four number four in asia being a lucky unlucky number a number that if you go into for example an asian um high-rise building you'll often see the number four is taken out entirely because of the connotation of number four being the death number and here you've got yeah you've got the house is number 44 the house at the end is number 14 
seen. Oh, uh, okay. That explains the focus on the number four then, which I, yeah, no idea on that one. I'm completely yeah. ignorant to that. The, this comes up a lot. And, and again, I, I, it's just, a t- it's mm. a small touch, but it's one of those things that ties it into like, this is a guy who, yeah, maybe just kind of doing a job that he's managed to get, but he's, he's engaged yeah. with the source material. He knows what's up with this stuff. And then like the characters in this movie are so sort of beset with sadness. Yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. This is not like, this is not like happy family goes to place, turns out place is creepy, gets haunted, goes mad. This is more like terribly sad, bereaved woman and bereaved child go to place, meet bereaved co-detective. And then we have a side story about a couple who are potentially going to lose a child or at least have a very difficult time raising their child with the yeah. John Cho, that that side of the story. There's sadness everywhere. And it's like the grudge is this all-consuming sense of past trauma. And I mean, where the grudge and where stuff like The Ring and Dark Water comes from is this sense in Japan of the way in which things that have been witnessed and experienced have changed people and won't go away. I mean, in the case of uh, The Ring, of course, this is also the impact of television and images on the screen and how they affect people. But I think in The Grudge, we're more looking at the trials and tribulations of the past. And what I think Pesci manages to do is kind of transport that to an American context, which so often works terribly with this kind of material, but make it a bit more universal. So that the theme here is the 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 sorrows of the past, the difficulties that are still with these people won't let them go. And for that reason, I, I guess that's not enough alone to recommend the movie. And it doesn't sound like a particularly good time at the cinema now that I say <laughs> it out loud. But I, I just, yeah, I just felt at times like you, like, oh, this is kind of run of the mill and this is whatever. And I'm kind of not so hot on it. And then every other scene would kind of pull me back in. The, the use of music, I also think, is quite well handled. It's not overbearing. It's not um, not your kind of stock in trade necessarily horror film or horror film remake music either it's kind of lilty in the background it kind of keeps itself fairly subtle for the most part i think there's a lot to like about it even though i think it's you know far from being a you know a a wonderful piece of filmmaking necessarily i think piercing's the better film but I'll be damned if someone would do a better better job with this source material. I don't know who it would be. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Mama. I'm genuinely glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And we haven't even mentioned, Paul, exec producing on this is Sam Raimi. So I guess he's given his, his seal of approval, even if many other people haven't, which I can completely understand. But yeah, uh, it's it would be interesting to hear what people make of The Grudge, because I think there will be a division of opinion. And I think it might skew towards the negative but but yeah let us know if you get to see it yourself whether you have a positive or negative take i guess yeah i would i would, I would echo that it'd be nice to hear from people and as i said I, you know i'd maintain i like the first half it just it, yeah just it's wobbled for me towards the end but yeah absolutely check it out for yourselves and see what you think because it's it's certainly one of the better remakes out there for sure yeah and you know um it's damning with faint praise though isn't it one of the one of the better remakes because they're all basically <laughs> sure, shit but then this yeah. one's like okay <laughs> you, you know the bit on the poster which is like it turns out john cho in the shower and there's like a yeah. hand coming out of the back of his head and it's like this big image like worst bit in the film yeah, to just, me like worst scare in the film it doesn't make any sense 
<laughs> no, no, it's it's a cool image for the poster. And I got the feeling with it as well that like certain scenes in the movie are just to appease the people who make the trailer. Yep. Like some <laughs> of the shots, we just need those for trailer fodder to get people in the cinema. But then maybe the director's like doing a little bit more than those, those people might have expected. But I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what other people think. Uh, other opinions available. That's Nicolas Pesce's movie, uh, The Grudge which is screening in cinemas around the country right now. Paul, we have another film to talk about, don't we? Should we take a little break before we get into that Let's take a little breather before we get to it. But yes, excited to for our second of our features, uh, which will be The Personal History of David Copperfield, right after this. So we are back with review number two. As Paul stated pre-break, this is the personal history of David Copperfield coming to us from um, director Armando Iannucci and writer Sam Blackwell. And of course, your boy Charles Dickens back in the day uh, wrote the original source material in the lead role. Um, I'm not going to say controversially because that's silly. Yeah. Uh, is Dev Patel and a huge cast of supporting actors and actresses, including Hugh Laurie and Tilda Swinton and, and many, many more besides, um, doing great work here to bring this thing back to our screens. Uh, this telling the story, uh, the personal history of David Copperfield, really, uh, telling the story of this guy as he grows up and not completely dissimilarly to the arc in Little Women, ends up sort of finding his voice as a writer by taking from his experiences and environment the voices, the ideas, the characters of the people that he meets and sort of wrapping them together, binding them together into fictional narrative that he may be able to produce by the time the film reaches its conclusion. Before we get into our fulsome thoughts on this film, let's hear a little clip. Hello, can you wake up? <coughs> What are you doing? Medicine. Reviving you. This is salad dressing. Is it? <clears throat> Thought it was Armagnac. Don't have my spectacles on. Do you have a lettuce somewhere covered in ointment? Um, his head is entirely removed from his body, we're sure. Let's leave Charles's head on one side for the moment, Mr. Dick. Pick it up later. Understood. How do you do? Now, Mr. Dick, don't be a fool, because no one can be more discerning than you when you choose. David Copperfield, my brother, you've heard me speak of him, Yes, just then. Oh, you mean before that? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I remember. Oh, I'm hungry. Cakes, um, cakes. Oh, Mr. Dick, my brother, David Copperfield. This is his son who's run away. What should we do with him? One thing he could do is... I'm, I'm you. I'd wash him. It's interesting there, Pete, that just before the clip you mentioned Little Women, uh, because this, for me, from the outset, felt like, much like Little Women as yet another breath of fresh air into what, for me, has become a very stale and kind of stoic, slightly dull, just sort of almost factory-produced um, classic literary adaptations. This isn't that, which is a good thing from the outset. As I said, it felt, felt like a breath of fresh air. There's an energy about this film that, it, that I said isn't normally present, that is present in, in Gerwig's Little Women, but we've talked about that film before, so we'll focus on, on, on David Copperfield for sure. But yeah, I think that, yeah, I, from the outset, I was just like, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this. There's a sense of fun that isn't there that I don't that I personally don't find there in, in similar sorts of films. Um, thoughts, Pete, on that? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, from the very beginning, the fact that we heard the casting news that it was going to be Dev Patel in the lead role, I think, uh, has a significance. It shouldn't have a significance, but it does. And then there are moments in the movie where you, for example, meet um, the... Uh, 
uh, Steerforth character, a, a friend that uh, Copperfield makes whilst he's at a sort of private educational institution, this well-to-do sort of privileged guy. And in a later scene, we meet his mother, who's played by a black actress of seemingly only about <laughs> 10 years older than him. And uh, for an instant, you think, like, oh, that's strange. It's kind of an anachronism. It feels a bit odd and a bit off. And then almost instantly, uh, at least in my case, but I'm sure for many people, I just, it doesn't matter. You forget about it. Because no, what... That it, you really don't. And it's its such a nice example of kind of genuine yeah. colorblind casting, I think, in this case. like, And then you've got Benedict Wong here um, playing a guy, a character who I'm sure in Dickens' original novel would have been white. I don't know. But it, yeah, it brings, as I said, it's all, yes, yeah, just a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, who would be best for these mm. roles? This is who we've picked. Yeah. Like and and it was almost like and I they've I think he's almost done it in a sly wink to a generation of people that are definitely going to be upset with mm. this. Um, and I think Amanda Iannucci wants those people to be upset with this casting in all honesty. Yeah, and and let's I mean let's think about it, man. Like the 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 argument would be, oh, if we're going to be accurate to the source material, the people in the source material are going to be ninety nine percent very largely white. However, how about we don't do that? How about we be accurate yeah. and uh, representative of our actual current society? Because we can tell the stories of the past. The important stuff here is the Dickens and is the Iannucci flourishes and is Simon Blackwell's writing. That's what's important here in terms of telling a story, not the colour of the skin of the people who are involved in the telling. So I think Iannucci's done something so simple but so inspired by being blind to the colour of the actors and not feeling any pressure seemingly to conform to the idea of what a literary adaptation of Dickens should look like, and I think it's a great strength of this movie. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that yeah, that's that's one of the things that one of the things that really really stood out for me. Um, that aside, I think there's there's other things. I think there's there's a lot of other things to like here. I think the performances are good. Dev Patel is an actor that I'm have an increase in fondness for almost with with every film. I think he's a very he's quite a subtle, nuanced actor, but I think he's um he's certainly he's certainly shaping up to be quite a talented leaded man. I think um this is a very different performance to to lion for example which probably is another one of my favorite performances of his but i thought he, he played the role well i thought there was he had a lot of charm in this there was a lot of character to him um and i think again you know going back to i think that this was directed with with such a again it was a there was a pacey there was a pacey kind of there was life to this which you don't normally get with these sort of stoic adaptations I mean, I mean, I, there's been a lot of versions of David Copperfield, but I think people, I hope people know what I mean. I'm saying that I'm not saying that the, the the previous, all the previous adaptations have necessarily been bad, but this is the kind of film. These kind of literary adaptations are not the films I would normally rush to go and see. Um, so it was such a pleasant surprise that it had this. It had the the strange, the, like the the touches of Ianucci comedy to it. It had more life to it than I'm used to, and I think that also. Coupled with the casting, I think I think worked in definitely worked in its favor. Yeah, and some real flourishes directorially as well. I would see this as um, something of a departure for Armando Iannucci because you're right to say that there are little comedic flourishes, but they are toned down. I mean, if if you've come into mm, this off the back definitely. like a lot of us of the death of Stalin, which is very sort of in your face, almost like a, an improv troupe riffing on a particular historical situation, that's not what you get here. I mean, you get some um, you know, funny moments, you get some deliberately kind of anachronistic characters or weird patterns of behavior, Tilda Swinton constantly shouting at donkeys, for example. <laughs> yeah. But you also get this directorial flourish that maybe on uh, uh, Ian 
Bonucci hasn't shown so much before. Like uh, there's a sequence early on in which um, while in the boathouse, I think a young incarnation of uh, Copperfield is uh, playing and then a hand reaches down apparently from the sky, like the hand of God. But then we transition to a slightly later sequence in which in fact that's the hand of his new kind of stepfather figure who's reaching down to chastise him mm. for his latest, you know, uh, indiscretion. So there are these really clever transitions that he does. He does one with a, a billowing sheet at one point as well, which is really, yeah, really great. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, those things took me by surprise a little bit and shows that, you know, show that Iannucci is, is growing as a director. I would say the flip side of that is that I can't, I can't sit here and say that there wasn't a slight pang of disappointment that the movie wasn't funnier. I found some of this film quite safe. And that doesn't mean mm. to say that that's bad. It was just quite safe. So it kind of, although there are flourishes in terms of transitioning from scene to scene, what we get is this kind of, um, you know, A to B to C to D, stepping through stages of life of the central character, interactions with slightly quirky individuals, but nothing as sort of whip sharp as I've got so accustomed to with Armando Iannucci's previous endeavours. I mean, where are you on that? I, I don't... I think I think that's fair. I don't... Th for me, I don't think it harmed the film at, at all because I, I still enjoyed it. But yeah, it, in terms of sort of weighted, weighted against expectation, I was expecting a more overt comedy than what we got, which is... There is some comedy here. I'd say it's more amusing... It's aiming to be more amusing than it is to be laugh-out-loud funny, which is, yeah, as you say, a departure for the director. So... Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on that. Did it harm the film for me? No. Was it what was it the film I expected? No. But that's not necessarily a bad thing in this case. But yeah, I, I would say, yeah, my expectation was that it would be more overtly funny than it was. It's not to say it's badly written in the slightest, but it is, yeah, it's if you go in expecting the tone of of any of Iannucci's previous work, it is quite different to that. Yeah, and it, it felt like, I don't know, a film made by a man growing up. I'm not sure. I mean, you told me before we recorded that um, popular film commenter critic Mark Kermode had given this a five-star review. And, and my response to that is like, I'm entirely unsurprised. And that's not a sort of dig at him at all, because I think it's a, a good piece of work. But mm. a man like Kermode, who is now, what, approaching 60 years of age... Uh, and who is very known for liking sort of gently amusing work. Yeah. Uh, this is entirely in his wheelhouse. So I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed quite a lot that the director brought to it. And I think Simon Blackwell, again, has written uh, a, a screenplay that is that is very, very good. And I think there are good performances, not only from people that we... I mean, particularly Hugh Laurie in this. I think Hugh Laurie gets to have mm. a great deal of fun being this kind of... Uh, slightly mad guy who um, pins the thoughts of who? Thomas Edison? No, James the... No, Charles the... One of the kings. Is it Charles the First or James Oh, that's the right. Yeah. Onto a... Well, yeah. eventually uh, Copperfield instructs him that he might be able to get those thoughts out of his head that he believes have been implanted in his head by uh, pinning them to a kite and flying a kite outside. And he suddenly finds a new lease of life and starts to embrace living again, which is kind of wonderful. There's sort of a wonder to it. Also, Iannucci does this kind of wide angle stuff, like countryside vistas and like characters in the lower bottom corner as we look out across fields. And this is not the, the film director that I've yeah. encountered before. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, more power to him for those things. I, I, yeah, I don't know how to put it exactly, but like, I suppose when you feel so much like this is a film that my mum would enjoy uh, a lot 
that doesn't mean it's a bad. Would thing. you say you, you would you say you respect it more as a film than you enjoyed it? Uh, no, I don't know what that means. I I think I think I it's a good film. I, I or it's, yeah. it's kind of a fine fine to good and and made by a group of people who've got you know more talent than your average. I I can't help but feel that I probably will have sort of forgotten about it by the end of this year. Okay, no, that's fair. As I said, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. For me, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. Whether or yeah, I don't think it will bother any end of the year list. I love that we're talking about end of the year list in January, <laughs> but yeah, I, I know where you're coming from, and I think yeah, for me, I I think it's probably the weakest of his work that I've seen or the least memorable of, of, of his work that I've seen but that's no by no means a bad film I liked it it was a breath of fresh air um, but compared to some of his other works I can see why it might feel a little bit inconsequential yeah yeah and and you know all the stuff at the beginning of this conversation is is still you know stuff I would absolutely stand by in terms of yeah the casting of the film the performances in the film the direction of the film you know these are all positives and you know I love recommending films to my mum so don't get me wrong that is not a a, you know slanderous comment on this on this piece of work you know having said that from a personal perspective this is not close to as good as little women in in my personal opinion uh no and and little women is a film i will remember and probably go back to i don't expect i'll ever watch this again not to say again that i'm slagging it off but just that i think it ran its course it finished and i thought okay i've seen that and i can move on with my life yeah, uh, yeah no it's uh, but i think the, the only sort of reason that the compare it to Gerwig's little women is because we've got this is two in quite quick, quick succession um classic literary adaptations that that do it differently that i think do it differently and are, are directed with yeah. pace that you're not well, normally familiar with well, yeah that and but the central no, it's not as good a film as little women yeah that and the central character is trying to find their voice as an author so that yeah. feels like yeah a, there is there is that yeah, similarity a yeah. big similarity but <laughs> yeah. but yeah um both of them are definitely worth your time i would say right like i think we're in agreement on that this and little women are, yeah are, absolutely yeah yeah are worth a watch to borrow a phrase that you uh used to use <laughs> more often uh, so I think that wraps us up on the personal history of David Copperfield. It leaves us only the section of the show that we call credits, where we give credit to something that we have seen in the last week or so or read or encountered that we think is good. Paul, have you got anything in particular that you want to talk about this week? Uh, I mentioned last week Star Trek The Next Generation, I think was, was me paying credit to that with my you know current pop culture reference there. Um, Picard has started. I'm only one episode into the new Star Trek series. But my God, did it not let me down, Pete? And I've watched, I've watched exactly, exactly the right Star Trek Next Generation episodes. So when they reference, there's certain things they reference, and I was just like, I've seen that episode. I know exactly what it's referring to. Um, I put that voice on as well. Uh, yeah, Star Trek Picard. It's great to see Patrick Stewart back as Jean-Luc Picard. Um, I've only seen the pilot. I thought it was really, really good. Um, it feels like Star Trek's found or there's been accusations that Star Trek has drifted more towards action and less towards sort of slightly harder science fiction, shall we say, or more thought-provoking science fiction. This seems like it might balance both. Um, it was good to see the character back on screen. Uh, Patrick Stewart is not phoning it in. He's clearly, it's clearly a character that he cares about um, and very much looking forward to the rest of the series. So yeah, check that out. It's just started on Amazon Prime if you have it. I think you can watch it free for the free for a, another week anyway. So yeah, worth a worth a watch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it back. Um, I I think I'm going to give a shout out then to something that I mentioned in the intro of the show, which is Sex Education, currently streaming on Netflix and into its second series. In fact, the whole second series is available. You can watch it all now. Uh, and the reason that I want to recommend it is because. When I went into the first series, I thought, you know, this is going to be a kind of frothy, teen, angsty thing set in a high school and I won't care. And it's very much not that. I mean, 
it's a real feat what they've done with the series. And I'm not going to give anything away about series two or even necessarily series one. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But they have created characters that at once are absolutely ciphers for particular insecurities, sexual proclivities, uh, growth issues. Uh, yeah, all the anxieties that go along with growing up. But at the same time are really authentic, believable young people. And I think that's massive credit to the team behind Sex Education. And in the mix, you've got one of the career best performances from Gillian Anderson as the... She is brilliant. I think we were watching it earlier. We were watching... I'm only on season one. I've just watched episode three just before we came on air, actually. And I think my wife looked at me and she was like, I did not know Gillian Anderson could be funny. <laughs> but she is. She's brilliant in it. She's having a blast. I also think both my wife and I are quite infatuated with her on a number of levels as well at this point. Um, but yeah, she's really great. Uh, Asa Butterfield, who's in the central role, is brilliant. Uh, the supporting cast are so good. Yeah, uh, get on it. Like, don't write it off as like a teen, you know, angsty drama. I'll be honest, plot. I had done. And it was, it was sort of word of mouth and some... And a couple of people who are in Bath said to me, no, it's really good. And then I kind of started reading around it. And you're like, oh, no, this is good. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah, even on, I think it, it it landed on me when I watched the episode I've just watched. Where I was just like, no, this is deeper than just, I thought maybe it'd be a bit like American Pie or just, as you say, like a, a flouncy sort of high school sex comedy thing. It's not that. Yeah. And I think it's deliberately kind of set nowhere as well. It's set in no time. It's very much john hughes inspired and it's set nowhere it's it's filmed in wales but it could be in america it could be in another part of england it could be in europe it doesn't really matter because i think that only strengthens the kind of universality of the issues that the kids here are dealing with and also like in a country like the uk in which people are so cripplingly terrible at talking about sexual issues and hang-ups and problems and, and just being open in that regard i think it's real uh a real benefit to a generation that a thing like this has been made with such honesty and candor and hasn't just been talking down to young people or pretending mm. as if, you know, young people's behavior is so abhorrent and, and, and non-relatable. I mean, there was a thing I started watching recently and we got through, I think, an episode um, that was called something like Candy. Zendaya's in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Zendaya's yeah. in it and it's about like sort of, American teens who were just all partying and doing drugs constantly and fucking and all sorts. But it felt like it had nothing to say about any of that stuff. Whereas this is is the opposite. So yeah, sex education is great. I'll stop now. It's not a feature review. But uh, apart from that, Paul, social media, contact, etc. and so on, right? Yeah, so find us on Twitter at Strangers Cinema, uh, Instagram, Strangers in a Cinema. Also, we're there on Facebook. So, yeah, talk to us, strangersincinema at gmail.com if you do want to email us with any complaints about the show. I don't know why I've said that. Or email us with praise about the show as well. So, yeah, if you want to email us about anything about the show, that's fine. Um, probably the easiest way to get hold of us is either Twitter or Instagram, to be fair, because that's what I tend to be on the most on my mobile device. So, uh, yeah, but get in touch by all means. Very excited for next week's show when we talk about the lighthouse and uncut gems um very very excited about that if i'm honest um and yeah so looking forward to coming back next week's show which hopefully will be on air a little bit earlier next week because i'm not away so yeah on, yeah. on air grandpa i reckon we want to say like available 
it's not it's not airing anywhere like quite quite literally but um yes no me too absolutely like really excited for next week because we've got not one but two amazing features to get our teeth into so that'd be great and um all the elements of the show that you know already and love so very dearly so um i guess that's the end of our show for this week i will say adieu for now um see you next week goodbye shut up and sit down